This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, two verses, verse 3 and 4. Excuse me. So, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It is simply impossible for us to understand just what those disciples went through during those momentous three days between Calvary and the resurrection. Remember that in just a few hours, everything they had believed in, everything they had trusted in was gone. In just a few hours, it was over. It was gone. They certainly were not prepared for the shock and the horror of Calvary. Their Messiah, crucified as a common criminal. Their Christ is now a corpse. The dreams they had that they cherished were shattered in a million pieces. Had all that they had been told been a lie? Surely if Jesus was the Messiah, then this nightmare would not have been possible. But there it is. Jesus is dead. He's cold stone dead and lying in a tomb. They were heartbroken. They were afraid. Perhaps they would be the next to suffer the same fate. It never even registered in their minds that Jesus had already warned them that such a thing was going to happen. He told them about Jonah being in the belly of the great fish, that he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. He told them that he was going away, but that he would return for them. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. But none of that made sense to them then, and it's not making sense to them now. And so, for fear of their lives, they were scattered. I wonder what was going on in their minds, how they were trying to process all that had happened so quickly to them. They had invested so much in this dream. Christ was so precious to them. The one that he believed in and trusted in and counted as a dear friend, now he's been cruelly taken away. Never again would they hear his voice, feel his embrace, sit at his feet, listen to his teaching. How could they ever, how could they ever believe anything ever again? How could they trust anyone ever again after this? Remember, these were all young men in their prime who had basically given up everything to follow their Messiah, but now it's gone, it's finished, it's over. So now we're beginning to see just how important 
The resurrection was to them in that day and to us in our day. And that's why Paul says, if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. We are still in our sins. And those who died in Christ have perished. In other words, if there is no resurrection, then all of this is meaningless. And that's true for us today as it was for them. So a strong belief and conviction in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not optional to us. It's foundational. It's central to everything that we believe, our whole belief system, our belief in God, our belief that Jesus is the Son of God, our belief that the Bible is the Word of God. All of that is contingent upon the fact and the great truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Somebody said, if you lose that pearl, then the necklace of the Christian faith begins to unravel. That's how important the resurrection is. But what do we believe, base our belief in the resurrection upon? Faith or fact? Does God simply expect us to believe the resurrection by faith? Uh, I mean, do the Scriptures not give any historical record? Is there no conclusive evidence for it? Or can we accept the resurrection by fact alone? Because there is overwhelming evidence of it, and we'll see some of it in a moment. Many men, some very famous people who tried to prove the, the resurrection was a fabrication of the disciples, that it was a fraud, it was a fable, but once they looked into the historical and the biblical evidence for it, then they could not deny it. It was so true and obvious and authentic that they could not resist the claims of the Bible. I believe that God just doesn't expect us to believe in the resurrection by faith alone because he's given us too much evidence to prove it. Nor do I believe that he wants us to believe it by fact alone simply because it's a supernatural event. And when something's supernatural, then obviously our faith has got to come into play to believe it. So the Christian has this unique advantage. One of the most important elements of our faith that God expects us to believe, we can believe it by faith, and we can believe it by fact. We can back up what we believe because the evidence is there for us. Let's just briefly remind ourselves of some of the evidences because they're overwhelming. And I don't have time this morning to go into them all, but just one or two. First of all, the four separate records, the gospel records. Now, there are people who, even today, who say that the story of the resurrection uh, was just uh, invented by the gospel writers. It was something they made up to try to sound convincing. But if this was something they just made up, if it was something they just invented, then it could only be by one or two ways. Either by consultation, in other words, they consulted together, or by isolation, they did this separately. Well, if it was by isolation, if there was no contact whatsoever, then the four accounts would have been wildly different. They would have been very, very different. 
But the fact is, they're not very, very different. Even though John's gospel is somewhat different, but together they're not widely different. And can you imagine that four people in isolation from one another writing a story that's so extraordinary, that's so dramatic, that's so unusual, and yet in isolation they write it, and when you look at it, it looks as if they've been in consultation because they're so alike. And so someone will say, well, that's because they were in consultation. They colluded together. <clears throat> but if they did collude together, then you've got to ask the question, if they did that, why is it that they didn't get their stories absolutely right? Why are there variations? Why are there some things a little bit different than others? For instance... Surely someone would have spotted if they had a colluded. Someone would have spotted that one said that it looked like there was just one woman went to the tomb. Others said there were several went to the tomb. Or one said there was one angel at the tomb. And others said there was two angels at the tomb. So if they colluded together to fabricate this, surely they would have ironed all those little things out. By the way, those can be proved not as contradictions, but if you read the four Gospels together, you'll see, and if you take enough time, you'll see that they're not contradictions at all. Actually, they fit perfectly together. And so they didn't write in isolation, and they didn't write in consultation with one another, then surely the only option is that it was by inspiration. By inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God breathed in spiral the Latin as God breathed into them and uh, anointed them and energized them to write their gospels. Remember John's gospel. John was a very, very old man when he wrote his gospel. And it's almost as if he had photographic memory of all those years back. I mean, he must have been about 90 when he wrote his gospel. And yet he could remember. How do you remember? Because the Holy Spirit inspired him and reminded him and showed him. Peter puts it this way, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. So this wasn't just man-made. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So one of the evidences that authenticates the resurrection is the evidence of the four gospel when you put them together. The second thing is the missing body. Now, there can only be three possible explanations for the missing body. One is that his enemies stole the body. Second is that his friends stole the body. Or the third is that on the third day, he rose again according to the Scriptures. That's all the options you have in this. Perhaps his enemies stole the body. Why would they do that? Well, in order to produce it later on, if, if these disciples said that Jesus had risen from the dead, well, then they could produce the body and say, well, you say it's a big lie. But they didn't do that. Actually, even Christ's enemies tried to blame the disappearance on his disciples, Matthew 27 and Matthew 28. In fact, they paid others to say that the disciples came and stole the body while they were asleep. But, well, what if his friends stole the body? 
well, I think it would seem inconceivable that the same man who just a few days before, <laughs> who, did, <laughs> who, who, who deserted a living Jesus, why would they suddenly rally around to the cause of a dead Jesus? If they didn't believe and live for the truth a few days ago, why would they now believe and live for a lie? And in fact, later on, would die for a lie. And so the only possible explanation is that Jesus rode the third day according to the Scriptures. And if the disciples did stay in the body, why did they leave the grave clothes? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, if they came along and if the guards had been sleeping, which they weren't, an angel frightened them off, but if they had been sleeping and they did manage to roll away the stone and get to the body of Jesus, they wouldn't have spent the next 30 minutes trying to unwrap the body. Why would they do that? It's a nonsense. Stealing the body of a criminal was actually a crime against the state. Did you know that? You see, Rome... When they crucified a criminal, they owned the body. Now, by and large, they would let, if a family came to claim the body, they would let the family claim the body for burial. But sometimes, if the crime was bad enough, by the way, treason, nobody could claim the body. And sometimes, if the crime was bad enough, they just let the body stay on the cross till it rots for the vultures to eat. Remember that Joseph of Arimathea, remember he had to go to Pilate to request the body of Jesus for burial. He couldn't just take that body, he had to go to Pilate because Pilate had the final say because the criminal's body belonged to the state. And in fact, by so doing, he fulfilled two scriptures. You know, there's lots of scriptures fulfilled around the cross and here's just two of them. Uh, in Isaiah 53 and 9, it said that Christ would be buried with the rich in his death. And he was. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were extremely rich men. They reckon that Nicodemus was the third richest man in all Israel. In this grave that no man had ever lain in before was belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich, wealthy man. He made his uh, grave with the rich in his death. And that's a wonderful scripture fulfilled. In Psalm 16 and 10, I will not let my Holy One see corruption. So he would not be allowed to remain on that cross. And so all of these scriptures and many, many more are fulfilled around this period of time, which is tremendous. So the only explanation was that Jesus rose again the third day according to the scripture. Amen. What about the grave clothes? Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 20. <coughs> By the way, I was reading the other day, and it was one of the old, old, old... <coughs> Uh, writers many, many years ago. Some of these old guys had, had some wonderful insights. And he said something, uh, in all my years of reading this story, I never thought of. He said that the first person, first man, I should say, the first man to touch 
Jesus, when he was born, was Joseph. That makes sense, doesn't it? There was only Mary and Joseph there. Joseph probably helped to deliver the baby. And he says, consider that the last man to touch the body of Jesus after he died was also called Joseph. Make of that what you will. I'm not making anything of it. <laughs> Certainly, you can't make any doctrines out of stuff like that, but it's just an interesting little thing. Now, John chapter 20. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that was John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So it's obvious when they said they have taken him, she probably thought it's the authorities. For some reason or other, the authorities has taken his body and we don't know where they put him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. They reckon that John was younger than Peter. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Now, it may have been that John was a little bit sensitive because uh, to even be near a dead body uh, meant that you were ceremonially unclean for seven days. And, and being a, a, a smart Jew, he knew that. And, and so maybe he just stopped and, you know, and thought, well, what do I do here? Uh, but Peter had, <laughs> but Simon Peter came following him, and he just burst right past him. And typical Peter, he just right into the tomb. He didn't think anything. He just wanted to go in there and see what was happening. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief which had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went and also, notice this. Underline it. And he saw and believed. Faith or fact or both. What he saw absolutely convinced him that Jesus had risen from the dead. Not that somebody had taken him, but he had risen from the dead. When he saw the grave clothes, he saw and believed. For as yet did not know the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So he, suddenly Scriptures didn't pop into his mind. What he saw convinced him. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now you must understand that the, the Jewish burial was that they would take the body, they would wash it. And if you read chapter 19, you'll see that Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, these two wealthy men of the Sanhedrin, the, uh, the greatest council of, of the Jews in Israel, smart men, educated men, theologians, very wealthy. And they came with a hundred pounds weight of myrrh and aloes to anoint the body with linen strips. Linen was very expensive in those days. And so they would, they would begin to wrap the body. Then they would, with some linen, then they would place some of these beautiful aromatic spices and, and ointments, then they would wrap more linen, then more spices and ointments, wrap more linen, and, and so that the body was, well, it was completely wrapped. And, and whenever that body would lie for a few days, then that 
gooey, gluey substance would seep into all of that linen and it would become encased in that. But when John looked and Peter looked and they saw the grave clothes not unwrapped, not unwrapped, but in a cocoon shape where Jesus just disappeared out of it. If they had saw them all unwrapped and lying in the mess, they would have thought, well, somebody's been a grave robber here. But what they saw, what John saw absolutely convinced that there was no other explanation. That cocoon shape was lying there, the grave clothes intact with a napkin to one side, neatly folded, but Jesus was not in it. He was gone. There was a hole where the face would have been, but the napkin was sitting aside. So when he saw that, that was fact. He could not deny that. But because it was supernatural, he had to believe it by faith too. What an amazing thing that God would even use those grave clothes to authenticate and to show that his son was truly risen indeed. I wish I had time to go forward in that story about Mary Magdalene, how she met the Lord. But I'll just say one thing about it. It's such a beautiful, beautiful, you should read that today several times. Such a beautiful, try to put yourself there. What a love she had for the master. And whenever he finally spoke her name and he said, Mary, and suddenly she knew immediately who that was. Nobody ever said her name like the way Jesus said it. And what did she reply back? One word, master. Rabboni, master. Those two words, consider that today. Mary, master. And those two words spoke an awful lot between those two at that time. And so the missing body, the grave clothes, but I think the greatest evidence of all for sure, of the resurrection is the transformation in the lives of the disciples. What else but the resurrection could account for such a dramatic change in their lives? They had suffered such a cruel blow. They were broken. They were beaten. They were devastated. They were disillusioned. They were hopeless. They were helpless. They were dispirited. They were at their lowest ebb possible. And yet, after the third day, when the resurrection happened, they were absolutely transformed. Completely different people. The resurrection was a turning point in their lives, and it was a turning point for our lives. It's a turning point for all of us, turning point in history. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't have been here today. Without the resurrection, there would have been no churches, there'd have been no apostles, there'd have been no New Testament books, there'd have been no upper room, there'd have been no Pentecost. There'd be no tongues of fire. There'd be none of that without the resurrection. There'd have been no missionaries. There'd have been no great evangelistic endeavors. Nothing without the resurrection. That was a turning point. That was one of the hinges of history.
in Acts chapter 1. See how important this was in the lives of the disciples. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom. And he being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized in the, with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we know that in Acts 2, uh, when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and Peter was transformed and became a mighty, mighty apostle, uh, preached his first full gospel sermon. Uh, and look at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out of my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, but for the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being despised, being, sorry, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Then he quotes Psalm 16. And then he goes on, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning, note this, the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, that Jesus was raised up there three times. See how important this is to the early church and to the early disciples. Therefore, Jesus was raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Glory to God. 
And then as we go on into chapter 3, the healing of the lame man. Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. A certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And what a, a, an amazement that was to everyone uh, who was there. But then you know how that, uh, the, the, well, let's read from verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him perfect soundness in the presence presence of you all, whom God has raised from the dead over and over and over and over again. He could not resist letting them know that Jesus was alive, that he had been raised from the dead. Ah, glory to God. Now let's see. In Acts 4, let Because of all of this. And they spoke to the people, the priests and captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Being greatly disturbed that they had taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, they laid their hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. What an explosion in Jerusalem. 3,000 and now another 5,000. And it came to pass the next day that the rulers, the elders, and the scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, John Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And they had sent them in the midst, they said, By what power, by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to help this man, by what means he has made him well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God God has raised from the dead by which this man stands before you all. This is a stone which was rejected by the builders and has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Ah, so many times over and over and over and over again. Stephen the martyr, the first martyr, in Acts chapter 7, after he preached a very lengthy sermon 
going right back to the whole history of Israel, right to Christ. And of course, they, they hated him. And in verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, and have received the law by, who have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard this, They heard these things. They were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Do you know, the truth is that as preachers, we generally only preach the resurrection at Easter time. And we generally only sing about the resurrection at Easter time. But the early church preached it continually. It was one of the main planks in every sermon they preached. And if you read through the Apostle Paul, he wrote a whole chapter, a whole chapter on one theme, the resurrection. The resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christians because of the resurrection of Christ. It was such an important part of their belief that they could not do anything else but preach about the resurrection. How important is it to us today? I think it's very important, isn't it? And there's something about it, isn't it? Did you notice today that when we sang all of those songs, including the worship songs and the individual pieces, all about the resurrection, the cross, and it was tremendous, wasn't it? And we thoroughly enjoyed just enjoying that thought that Jesus died for us and he rose again for us. I'm going to close just reading this. I think this is absolutely fantastic and beautiful. In Revelation chapter 1, In verse 12, John said, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And behold, I I have the keys of heaven. Hades and of death. Glory to God. What an image. The book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's revealing. Jesus Christ as we have never seen him and as John had never seen him. Remember John saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration but he never saw this. No wonder he fell at his feet as dead and if we were there we'd have fallen at his feet as dead too. Eyes as a flame of fire, hair white as wool, feet shining like brass. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. What an image of Christ, the risen, resurrected Son of God. 
That's our Savior today. That's our Lord today. That's the one that we serve. No longer on a cross, no longer in a tomb, as Martin prayed earlier, but seated at the right hand of the Father, where he ever lives to make intercession for us today. He's alive today for us today. Glory to God. And as often said, when we get to see him, he'll have a body, glorified resurrection body. And we'll see the scars on his hands. He'll forever identify with us. What a loving Savior. What a wonderful Savior. No wonder Wilson stands out in that street with that cross and reminds people of Jesus, the Son of God. We need to remind more people about Jesus, the Son of God, don't we? What a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you said, because I live, you shall live also. So we thank you that your resurrection will mean our resurrection. We thank you that because you rose from the grave, we too will rise from the grave also. So what a comfort, what a blessing, what an affirmation, Lord, what an assurance you have given us today. And we give you thanks for it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are powerful and mighty. You sit at the right hand of your Father, and we bless you that one day you're coming back to claim those that belong to you, your bride. Thank you for making us your sons and daughters today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that did it. We bless you. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.